0: Chapter 8 Cress hardly felt the hot water beating on her head. Outside her washroom, a second era opera blared from every screen. With the woman's powerful voice in her ears, swooning over the incessant shower, Cress was the star, the damsel, the center of that universe. She sang along at full volume, pausing only to prepare herself for the crescendo. She didn't have the full translation memorized but the emotions behind the words were clear. Heartbreak. Tragedy. Love. Chills covered her skin, sharply contrasted against the steam. She pressed a hand to her chest, drowning. Pain. Loneliness. Love. It always came back to love. More than freedom. More than acceptance. Love. True love, like they sang about in the second era. The kind that filled up a person's soul. The kind that lent itself to dramatic gestures and sacrifices. The kind that was irresistible and all-encompassing. The woman's voice rose in intensity with the violins and cellos. A climax sung up into the shower's downpour. Cress held the note as long as she could, enjoying the way the song rolled over her filling her with its power. She ran out of breath first, suddenly dizzy. Panting, she fell against the shower wall. The crescendo died down into a simple, longing finale, just as the water sputtered out. All of Cress's showers were timed to ensure her water reserves wouldn't run out before Mistress Sybil's next supply visit. Cress sank down and wrapped her arms around her knees, Realizing there were tears on her cheeks, she covered her face and laughed. She was being ridiculously melodramatic. But it was well-deserved, because today was the day. She'd been following the Rampians' path closely since they'd agreed to rescue her nearly 14 hours before, and they'd not deviated from their course The rampion would be crossing through her satellite's trajectory in approximately one earthen hour and fifteen minutes. She would have freedom, and friendships, and purpose. And she would be with him. In the next room, the operatic solo began again, quiet and slow and tinged with longing. Thank you. Chris whispered to the imaginary audience that was going mad with applause. She imagined lifting a bouquet of red roses and smelling them, even though she had no idea what roses smelled like. With that thought, the fantasy disintegrated. Sighing, she picked herself off the shower floor before the tips of her hair could get sucked down the drain. Her hair weighed heavy on her scalp. It was easy to ignore when she was caught up in such a powerful solo, but now... The weight of it threatened to make her topple over, and a dull headache was already creeping up from the base of her skull. This was not the day for headaches. She held up the ends of her hair with one hand, taking some pressure off her head, and spent a few minutes wringing it out, handful by soaking handful. Emerging from the shower, she grabbed her towel, a ratty gray thing she'd had for years, worn to holes in the corners. Volume down, she yelled out to the main room. The opera faded into the background. A few last droplets from the shower head dribbled onto the floor. Cress heard a chime. She pulled her hair through her fists again, gathering another handful of water and shaking it out of the shower before wrapping herself in a towel. The weight of her hair still tugged at her, but was feeling manageable again. In the main room, All but the single DCOM screen were showing the theater footage. The shot was a close-up of the woman's face, thick with makeup and penciled eyebrows, a lion's mane of fire-red hair topped with a gold crown. The DCOM screen held a new message, from user mechanic, ETA sixty-eight minutes. Cress was buoyed by giddiness. It was happening. They were really coming to rescue her. She dropped the towel to the floor and grabbed the wrinkled dress she'd been wearing before, the dress that was a little too small and a little too short because Sybil had brought it for Cress when she was only 13, but that was worn to the perfect softness. It was Cress's favorite dress, not that it had a lot of competition. She pulled it over her head, then rushed back into the bathroom to begin the long process of combing out her wet tangles. She wanted to look presentable, after all. No, she wanted to look irresistible. But there was no use dwelling on that. She had no makeup, no jewelry, no perfume, no properly fitting clothes, and only the most basic essentials for daily hygiene. She was as pale as the moon, and her hair would dry frizzy, no matter how she coddled it. After a moment of staring at herself in the mirror, she decided to braid it, her best hope for keeping it tamed. She had just divided it into three sections at the nape of her neck when little Cress's voice squeaked. Big sister? Cress froze. She met her own wide-eyed gaze in the mirror. Yes? Mistress's ship detected. Expected arrival in 22 seconds. No, 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 not today, she hissed. Releasing her wet strands of hair, she rushed out into the main room. For once, her few belongings weren't strewn across the floor and tabletops because they were all packed neatly inside a pulled-out drawer that sat on top of her bed. Dresses, socks, and undergarments neatly folded alongside hair combs and barrettes and what food packs she still had from Sybil's last visit. She'd even nestled her favorite pillow and blankets on top. All evidence that she was running away. Oh, stars! Stars! She swept forward and grabbed the drawer with both hands, pulling it off the bed. She tore out the blanket and pillow and tossed them onto the mattress before dragging the heavy drawer over to the desk she'd taken it from. Double zero, fourteen, double zero, thirteen, double zero, twelve, sang little Cress as she wrestled the drawer back into place. It wouldn't shut. Cress squatted beside it, eyeing the rails to either side of the drawer. It took seven more seconds of harried finagling before she managed to slam the drawer shut. Sweat or water from her still wet hair dripped down the back of her neck. Tugging out a lock of hair that had gotten caught in the drawer, she hastily straightened the bed as well as she could. Mistress has arrived. She is requesting an extension of the docking clamp. I'm getting there, Cress responded, darting toward the boarding ramp screen and entering the code. She turned back to the room as the clamp extended outside her walls, as Sybil's ship attached, as oxygen filled the space. The opera singer was still there, and Mistress would be annoyed at Cress's waste of time, but at least it wasn't. She gasped, her eyes landing on the one screen that stood out from the rest, and the single bright green message on a field of black. From User Mechanic, ETA 68 Minutes. She heard Sybil's steps approaching as she launched herself across the room. She shut down the screen just as the satellite door whistled open. Hard in her throat, Cress spun around and smiled. Sybil met her gaze from the doorway. She was already glaring, but Cress thought her eyes narrowed even more in that moment between seeing Cress and noting her brilliant grin. Mistress, what a surprise. I just got out of the shower. was just listening to some opera. She gulped, her mouth suddenly dry. Sybil's eyes darkened, and she cast them around the room, at the screen still quietly transmitting the opera singer engrossed in her song. Sybil sneered. Earthen music. Cress chewed on her lower lip. She knew there were musicians and plays and all sorts of entertainments for the lunar court, but they were rarely recorded, and Cress didn't have access to them. Lunars generally disliked having their true appearances transmitted for all the galaxy to see. They much preferred live performances where they could alter the audience's perception of their skills. All screens mute, she murmured, trying to stop shaking. In the wake of silence, Sybil stepped inside, allowing the door to shut behind her. Cress gestured to the familiar metal box Sybil carried. I don't believe I'm in need of any supplies, mistress. Is it time for another blood sample already? She asked, knowing it wasn't. Sybil set the box on the bed, sparing a distasteful glance for the rumpled blankets. I have a new assignment for you, Crescent. I trust you noticed that one of our primary feeds from New Beijing Palace was disabled last week. Cress willed herself to look natural, collected, and unworried. Yes, the recorder from the Emperor's office. Her Majesty found it to be one of the more lucrative feeds we've placed on Earth. She wants another programmed and installed immediately. She opened the box, revealing a collection of chips and recording devices. As before, the signal should be untraceable. We don't want it drawing any attention to itself. Cress nodded, perhaps too enthusiastically. Of course, mistress. It won't take long. I can have it finished tomorrow. I'm sure it will be disguised in a light fixture, like the last one. No, we risked too much by brainwashing the maintenance attendant before. Make it so that it can be more easily hidden. Able to embed on a wall hanging, perhaps. One of the other thaumaturges will likely handle the installation themselves during our upcoming visit. Cress's head was still bobbing. Yes, yes, of course, no problem. Sibyl scowled. Perhaps Cress was being too agreeable. She stopped nodding, but it was difficult to focus as a clock ticked in her head. If Cinder and the others spotted the lunar pod ship attached to her satellite, they would think Cress had led them into a trap. But Mistress Sibyl never stayed long. Surely she would be well gone before the hour was up. Surely. Is there anything else, Mistress? Have you anything to report on the other earthen feeds? Cress strained to think about any news she may have heard in the past few days. Her skills in cyber espionage went beyond research and hacking into earthen feeds and databases, or programming spy equipment to be strategically installed in various homes and offices of high-ranking officials. It was also one of her responsibilities to monitor those feeds and report anything interesting back to Sybil and Her Majesty. It was the most voyeuristic part of her job, which she hated. But at least if Sybil was asking her about it now, it meant that she and the queen hadn't had time lately to monitor the feeds themselves. Everyone's focused on the wedding, Chris said. Lots of talk of travel arrangements and scheduling diplomatic meetings while so many representatives are together in New Beijing. She hesitated before continuing. A lot of Earthans are questioning Emperor Cato's decision to enter into the alliance and whether or not it will really signal an end to the attacks. The European Federation recently placed a large order from a weapons manufacturer. It seems they're preparing for war. I could find the specifics of that order if you want. Don't waste your time. We know what they're capable of. Anything else? Cress searched her memory. She considered telling Mr. Sybil that one UK representative, a Mr. Bristol-something, was trying to make a political statement by rejecting his invitation to the royal wedding. But she determined that his decision might still change. Knowing Her Majesty, she would want to set the man up as an example, and Cress didn't want to think what she would do to him or his family. No, mistress, that's all. And what about the cyborg? Any progress there? She had told the lie so many times it was effortless on her tongue. I'm sorry, Mistress, I haven't found anything new. Do you suppose, Crescent, that her ability to go without detection is due to a similar technique we use to disguise our ships? Cress pulled her damp hair away from her neck. Perhaps. I understand she's a talented mechanic. Her skills may include software jamming. And if that's the case... Would you be able to detect it? Cress opened her mouth, but hesitated. She most likely could, but telling Sybil that would be a mistake. She would only wonder why Cress hadn't thought of doing it sooner. I don't think so, mistress, but I'll try. I'll see what I can find. See that you do. I'm sick of making excuses for you. Cress tried to look regretful, but her fingers were tingling with relief. Sybil always said some variation of this line when she was preparing to leave. Of course, mistress. Thank you for bringing me this new work, mistress. A chime sang through the room. Cress recoiled, but instantly attempted to morph her expression into nonchalance. Just another chime, just another non-suspicious alert for one of Cress's non-suspicious hobbies. Sybil had no reason to question it. But Sybil's attention had swerved to the single black screen that had awoken with the alert. A new message had appeared. Message received from mechanic. ETA, 41 minutes. Need final coordinates. The satellite tilted beneath Kress. But no, it was her own balance leaving her. What is this? Sybil said, nearing the screen. It's, It's a game. I've been playing it with the computer, her voice squeaked. Her face was warming, cooled only where her damp hair clung to her cheeks. There was a long silence. Cress tried to feign indifference. Just a silly game, imagining the computer as a real person. You know how my imagination can be when I get lonely. Sometimes it's nice to have someone to talk to, even if they're not. Sybil grabbed Cress's jaw, shoving her hand against a window that overlooked the blue planet. Is it her? Sybil hissed. Have you been lying to me? Cress couldn't speak, her tongue heavy with terror, as if she were pinned by a glamour. But this was not magic. This was only a woman strong enough and angry enough to tear Cress's arms from their sockets, to break her skull against the corner of the desk. You had better not even think to lie to me, Crescent. How long have you been communicating with her? Her lips trembled. Since yesterday, she half sobbed. I was trying to earn her trust. I thought if I could get close enough, I could tell you and- A slap sent the world spinning and Cress hit the floor. Her cheek burned and her brain took a moment to stop rattling inside her skull. You hoped she was going to rescue you, said Sybil. No, no, mistress. After all I've done for you, saved your life when your parents meant to have you slaughtered. I know, mistress. I was going to bring her to you, mistress. I was trying to help. I even allowed you net access to watch those disgusting earthen feeds, and this is how you repay me? Sybil eyed the screen where the message still lingered. But at least you've finally done something useful. Cress shuddered. Her brain began to cloud with the instinctual need to run, to escape. She shoved herself off the floor, but tripped on her hair and landed hard against the closed doors. Her fingers sought out the keypad, punching in the command. The door zipped open. She did not wait to see Sybil's reaction. Close door. Cress flew down the corridor, lungs burning. She couldn't breathe. She was hyperventilating. She had to get out. Another door loomed before her. An identical switch beside it. She barreled into it. Open. It did. She stumbled forward and her abdomen smacked into a railing. She grunted from the collision, bracing herself before she could topple over it and straighten into the cockpit. She stood, panting and staring wide-eyed at the interior of a small pod ship. Lights and flashing panels and screens glowed all around her. The windows formed a wall of glass separating her from a sea of stars. And there was a man. His hair was the color of golden straw, and his body strong and broad in his royal uniform. He looked like he could be threatening, But at that moment, he seemed only astonished. He raised himself from the pilot seat. They gawked at each other as Cress struggled to find words amid her tumbling thoughts. Sybil did not come alone. Sybil had a pilot that brought her here. Another human being knew that Cress existed. No, another lunar knew that Cress existed. Help me, she tried to whisper, gulping when the words couldn't form. Please, please help me. He shut his mouth. Cress's hands twitched on the bar. Please, her voice broke. The man flexed his fingers and she thought, was it only her imagination? His eyes seemed to soften, to sympathize, or to calculate. His hand shifted toward the controls, the command to shut the door, to disengage from the satellite, to fly her away from the prison. I don't suppose you killed her, he said. The words seemed like they came from a different language altogether. He said them emotionlessly, a simple question, expecting a simple answer. Killed her? Killed her? Before she could form a response, the guard's eyes sped past her. Sybil grabbed a fistful of Cress's hair and yanked her back toward the corridor. Cress screamed and collapsed onto the ground. Jason, we're about to have company, said Sybil, ignoring Cress's sobs. Separate yourself from the satellite, but stay close enough to have good visual without drawing suspicion. When an Earthen ship draws close, they will likely release one pod ship. Wait until the pilot has boarded the satellite, and then rejoin us using the opposite entry hatch. I will ensure the clamp is pre-extended. Cress trembled; nonsense words falling from her in hopeless pleas. The man's sympathy and astonishment were gone, vanished as if they'd never been there. Perhaps they never had. He jerked his head in a nod, no question, no thought to disobey. Though Cress screamed and kicked, Sybil managed to drag her all the way back to the satellite's main room, tossing her like a bag of broken android parts on the floor. The door shut behind them, dividing her from the exit, from her freedom, and with its familiar clang, she knew. She would never be free. Sybil was going to kill her. And she was going to kill Lynn Cinder and Carswell Thorne. When Cress pushed back her mess of hair, a sob shook her to the bones. Sybil was smiling. I suppose I should thank you. Lynn Cinder is going to come to me and our queen will be so pleased. Bending down, Sybil grasped Cress's chin in a claw-like grip. Unfortunately, I don't think you'll survive long enough to receive your reward. Chapter 9 Cinder groaned, the impact of her most recent landing still reverberating through her spine. The cargo bay's ceiling spun and wobbled in her vision. Was that necessary? wolf and scarlet appeared above her i'm sorry said wolf i thought you had control are you all right frustrated and sore but yes i'm fine she forced herself to take wolf's outstretched hand he and scarlet both helped her to her feet you're right i lost focus i felt your energy snap out of my hold like a rubber band That was moments before Wolf completed the maneuver she'd managed to halt for six whole seconds, grasping her arm and tossing her over his shoulder. She rubbed her hip. I need a moment. Maybe you should call it quits for the day, said Scarlet. We're almost to the satellite. Aiko chimed in. Estimated time of arrival is nine minutes, thirty-four seconds, which, by my estimation, is enough time for Cinder to be defeated and embarrassed in seven more brawls. Cinder glared up at the ceiling. Also just enough time to disconnect your audio device. Since we have a few minutes, said Scarlet, maybe we should talk about how to handle this girl. If she's been stuck on a satellite for seven years with no one to talk to but a lunar thaumaturge, She might uh, be socially awkward. I think we should all make an effort to be extra welcoming and supportive and try not to terrify her. A laugh came from the cockpit, and Thorn appeared in the doorway, strapping a gun holster around his waist. You're asking the cyborg fugitive and the wild animal to be the welcoming committee? That's adorable. Scarlet planted her hands on her hips. I'm saying we should be aware of what she's been through and try to be sensitive to that. This may not be an easy transition for her, Thorne shrugged. The Rampion is going to be like a five-star hotel after living on that satellite. She'll adjust. I'll be nice to her, said Aiko. I can take her net shopping, and she can help me pick out my future designer wardrobe. Look, I found this custom escort shop that has the best accessories and some discounted models. What would you think of me with orange hair? The net screen on the wall switched to an escort droid sale listing. The image of a model was slowly rotating, showing off the android's perfect proportions, peachy skin, and royalty-approved posture. She had purple irises and cropped tangerine hair and a tattoo of an old-fashioned carousel that rotated around her ankle. Cinder squeezed an eye shut. Aiko, what does this have to do with the satellite girl? I was getting to that. The screen scrolled through a menu, landing on hair accessories and dozens of icons clustered together, showing everything from dreadlocked wigs to cat ear headbands to rhinestone-encrusted barrettes. Just think of how much potential she has with hair like that. You see, said Thorne, nudging Scarlet in the shoulder. Iko and the imprisoned, socially awkward satellite girl, best friends forever. Now, what I'm worried about is how we're going to be dividing the reward money when this is all over, because this ship is starting to feel awfully crowded, and I'm not sure I'm happy with all of you cutting into my profits. What reward money, asked Scarlet. The reward Cinder's gonna pay us out of the lunar treasury once she's queen. Cinder rolled her eyes. I should have guessed. And that's just the beginning. By the end of this escapade, the whole world will see us as heroes. Imagine the fame and fortune, the sponsorship opportunities, the marketing requests, net dramatization rights. I think we should discuss the profit division sooner rather than later, because I'm considering a 60 10 10 10 10 split right now. Am I the fourth 10%? said Iko. Or is that satellite girl? Because if it's that satellite girl, I'm going on strike. Can we discuss this imaginary money later? said Cinder. Like, maybe when there's actual money to discuss? suggested Scarlet. Besides, Don't you still have to prepare the pod ship? Oui, mademoiselle. With a salute, Thorne grabbed a handgun off a storage grate and sank it into the holster. Scarlet cocked her head. Are you sure you don't want me to go? It's going to require some precise maneuvering to attach the docking clamp. And from what Cinder told me about your flying skills, what do you mean? What did Cinder say about my flying skills? Scarlet and Cinder shared a look. Naturally, she told me that you're a fantastic pilot, said Scarlet, grabbing her red hoodie off a crate. Though it had been badly torn in Paris, she'd stitched it up as well as she could. Absolutely top notch. I think she was practicing her sarcasm, said Iko. Thorn glared, but Cinder only shrugged. I'm just saying, continued Scarlet, threading her arms through the sleeves, It may not be an easy attachment. You have to dock slowly, and don't leave the pod until you're sure the satellite system's compatible and you have a secure connection. I can handle it, said Thorn. Winking, he reached out and gave Scarlet's nose a tweak, ignoring how Wolf bristled behind her. But you sure are sweet to be so concerned about me. The docking clamp engaged on Thorn's second attempt, which he thought was pretty good for never having docked with a satellite before. He hoped Scarlet was watching, after she'd so brazenly doubted his abilities. He checked the connection before putting the pod ship into standby mode and unlatching his harness. Through the window, he could see the curving side of the satellite and one of its circular gyrodines whirling lazily overhead, propelling the satellite through space. He could see only the edge of the docking hatch through the ship's windows, But it appeared secure, and his instruments were telling him that the pressure and oxygen levels made it safe to exit his ship. He tugged his collar away from his throat. He was not, by nature, a paranoid man, but dealing with lunars gave him more hesitation than he was accustomed to. Even young, semi cute ones young, semi cute ones who had probably been driven insane by years of solitude. Thorne unlatched the podship door and it swung upward revealing two steps up to a ramp edged with a rail, and beyond it, a narrow corridor. His ears popped with the change in pressure. The entrance into the main satellite was still shut tight. But as he approached, he heard a hissing noise, and the doors parted, sliding seamlessly into the walls. He recognized the room from the DCOM connection. Dozens of flat, clear screens, some overhead storage cabinets, a must-up bed with worn blankets, a wash of bluish-white light coming from built-in fixtures. A door to the left led to what he assumed was a washroom, and directly opposite him, there was the door to the second podship hatch. The girl was sitting on the edge of the bed, her hands in her lap, her hair pooling over both shoulders and ending in a bundle of knotted frizz by her shins. She was smiling, a close-lipped, polite look that was entirely at odds with the nerve-bundled reaction she had had over the decom. But that smile faltered when she saw him. Oh, it's you, she said, tilting her head to the side. I was expecting the cyborg. No need to look so disappointed, Thorne thrust his hands into his pockets. Cinder can fix ships, but she's useless at flying them. I'll be your escort today, Captain Carswell Thorne at your service. He tipped his head toward her. Rather than swoon or flutter her lashes, as was duly expected of her, the girl looked away and glowered at one of the screens. Coughing, Thorne rocked back on his heels. Somehow he'd expected that a girl with no prior human interaction would be a lot easier to impress. You all packed up? We don't like to loiter in one spot for long. Her eyes flickered to him. Hinting at annoyance. No matter, she murmured to herself. Jason and I will go to her then. Thorn frowned, feeling a twist of regret at his previous mocking, even if it had only been in his own head. What if the solitude really had driven her crazy? Jason? She stood up, her hair swinging against her ankles. He hadn't been able to tell how tall she was before, But now, seeing that she couldn't have been much more than five feet, he felt comforted. Crazy or not, she was harmless. Probably. Jason, my guard. Right. Well, why don't you invite your friend Jason to join us, and let's get going. Oh, I don't think you'll be getting far. She stepped toward him, and at that moment, she changed. The nest of hair grew dark and silky as a raven's wing. Her eyes changed from sky blue to slate gray. Her pale skin turned golden, and her body stretched upward, becoming tall and graceful. Even her clothes changed, from the plain worn day dress to a dove-white coat with long sleeves. Thorne was quick to bury his surprise. A thaumaturge, figured. Not one for denial, he accepted the immediate resignation with a stiffening of his shoulders. It had all been a trap then. The girl had been bait, or or perhaps she'd been in on it all along. Funny, he usually had better instincts when it came to these sorts of things. He stole another glance around the room, but there was no sign of the girl. Something clanged outside the second entry hatch, shaking the satellite. Hope, his crew must have noticed something was wrong. That would be them now aboard the second pod ship. He called up his most practiced, most charming grin and reached for his gun. He even felt a sting of pride when he managed to get it all the way out of its holster before his arm froze of its own accord. Thorne shrugged with the one uncontrolled shoulder. You can't blame me for trying. The thaumaturge smirked and Thorne's fingers loosened. The gun clattered to the ground. Captain Carswell Thorne, is it? That's right. I'm afraid you won't have claim to the title for long. I'm about to commandeer your rampion for the queen. I'm sorry to hear that. Additionally, I assume you are aware that assisting a wanted fugitive, such as Lynn Cinder, is a crime punishable by death on Luna. Your sentence is to be carried out immediately. Efficiency, I respect that. The second entry door opened behind her. Thorn tried to send mental warnings to his companions. It was a trap. Be ready. But it was not Cinder or Scarlet or Wolf who stood in the secondary entry hatch, but a lunar guard. Thorn's hope began to wither. Jason, we will be boarding the Rampion using its own pod ship. Ah, you're Jason, said Thorn. I thought she was making you up. They ignored him, but he was rather used to that. Go see that it's ready to disembark as soon as I'm finished here. The guard respectfully inclined his head and moved to follow her commands. Careful, said Thorn. It wasn't an easy connection. Required some real precise maneuvering. In fact, would you like me to come disconnect the ship for you, just to make sure you do it right? The guard eyed him smugly as he passed, not as empty-eyed as he'd appeared before. But he didn't respond as he slipped into the corridor. Heading toward Thorn's podship, the Thometers grabbed a blanket from the bed and tossed it at Thorne. He would have caught it on reflex, but it wasn't necessary. His hands did all the work without him. Soon he found himself wrapping the blanket around his own wrists and tying it into intricate knots, giving the blanket a final yank with his teeth to tighten it into place. I look forward to returning to Luna aboard your ship and spreading the good news that Lynn Cinder is no longer a threat to our crown. His eyebrow twitched. Anything I can do to assist her majesty's benevolent cause? The thaumaturge strode to a screen beside the hatch and entered a command, a security code followed by a complicated set of instructions. I had at first considered turning off the life support and letting you and Crescent gasp for air as the oxygen was used up. But that could take too long, and I would hate to give you an opportunity to free yourselves and call for assistance. Instead, I will be merciful. Finished. She straightened her long sleeves. Consider yourself lucky that it will be quick. I always consider myself lucky. Her gaze became hard as Sterling, and Thorne found himself marching toward the open door that led to the washroom. As he got closer, he saw the girl tied up with a sheet around her hands, knees, and ankles, and a cloth gag in her mouth. As he got closer, he saw the girl tied up with a sheet around her hands, knees, and ankles, and a cloth gag in her mouth. Remnants of tears streaked down her blotchy face, Her hair was a tangled mess on the ground all around her. Many of the locks caught up in her bindings. Thorn's gut tightened. He'd been sure that she had betrayed them, but her trembling body and horrified expression said otherwise. His knees gave way, and he landed on the floor with a grunt. The girl winced. Drawing a sharp breath through his nostrils, Thorn glared up at the thaumaturge. Is this all necessary? You're scaring the poor girl. Crescent has no reason to be upset. It was her betrayal that brought us to this moment. Right, the five-foot-tall girl tied up and gagged in the bathroom is always the one to blame. Besides, the thaumaturge continued as if he hadn't spoken, I'm granting Crescent her greatest wish. I'm sending her to Earth. She held up a small, shimmering chip, Identical to the decom Cinder had been carrying around with her. I'm sure Crescent won't mind if I keep this. It is, after all, property of her majesty. Her sleeves whipped behind her as she left. Thorn heard her heels clipping down the docking hatch, and the doors shut behind her. His pod ship's engine was muffled, but he felt the slight jolt when they disconnected. It was only then that he felt the first pang of helplessness. She'd taken his ship. That witch had taken his ship. But the Rampian had a second shuttle. His crew could still come for them, would come for them. But then he sensed something new, a slight pull, a gentle shift, and the girl whimpered. The satellite's trajectory had been altered. Gravity was claiming them, drawing them out of their orbit. The satellite was falling toward Earth. Chapter 10 He's attached, said Scarlet, watching Thorn's podship through the cockpit viewing window. That wasn't too embarrassing. Cinder propped herself against the doorframe. I hope he's quick about it. We have no way of knowing that this girl isn't being monitored. You don't trust her, said Wolf, I don't trust who she works for. Wait, is that another ship? Scarlet jerked forward, pulling up a radar search on the screen beside her. Our scanners aren't seeing it. Wolf and Cinder clustered behind her, peering down at the pod ship, only slightly larger than Thorn's, as it neared the satellite. Cinder's heart began to pound. Lunar. It has to be, said Scarlet. If they're blocking the signals- no, look, the insignia. Wolf cursed. It's a royal ship, probably a thaumaturge. She betrayed us, Cinder murmured, shaking her head in disbelief. I don't believe it. Do we run? Asked Scarlet. And abandon Thorn? In the window, the lunar pod ship had connected with the satellite's second clamp. Cinder raked her fingers through her hair, her thoughts stumbling through her head. Calm them. Establish the DCOM link. We need to know what's going on. No, said Wolf. It's possible they don't know we're here. Maybe she didn't betray us. If they didn't pick up our ship on radar, there's still a chance they haven't had visual of us. They would know Thorn's pod ship came from somewhere. Maybe he'll be able to get away, Iko chimed in. But there wasn't the normal enthusiasm to her tone. Against a you saw how well that worked out in Paris. So what do we do, said Scarlet? We can't calm them. We can't dock. We should run, said Wolf. They'll come for us next. They both looked at Cinder, and she realized with a jolt that they expected her to take charge. But it wasn't a simple decision. Thorne was down there. He'd walked right into a trap, and this had all been Cinder's idea in the first place. She couldn't leave him. Her hands began to shake from gripping the chair. Every second of indecision was wasted time. Cinder! Scarlet placed a hand on her arm. It only made her squeeze the chair tighter. We have to. run! We have to run! Scarlet nodded. She spun back to the controls. Ico, prep thrusters for. wait! said Wolf. Look! Beyond the cockpit window, a podship was disconnecting from the satellite. Thorn's podship. What's happening? Iko asked. Cinder hissed. Thorn's ship is coming back. Calm him. Scarlet pulled the calm screen up. Thorn, report. What happened down there? The screen returned only static. Cinder chewed on the inside of her cheek. After a moment, the static was replaced with a simple text calm. Camera disabled. We're injured. Open dock. Cinder reread the message until the words blurred in her vision. It's a trap, said Wolf. It might not be, she answered. It is. We don't know that for sure. He's resourceful, Cinder. He could have survived. Or it's a trap, muttered Scarlet. Cinder, Iko broke in, her voice pitched high. What should I do? She swallowed hard and shoved herself away from the chair. Open the dock. Both of you, stay here. Absolutely not, Wolf fell into step beside her. She could tell that he was in fight mode, his shoulders hunched near his ears, his hands curled into claws, his stride fast and determined. Wolf, Cinder pressed her titanium fist against his sternum. Stay here. If there is a thaumaturge on that ship, Aiko and I are the only ones who can't be controlled. Scarlet latched onto his elbow. She's right. Your presence could do more harm than good. Cinder didn't wait for Scarlet to convince him. She was already halfway down the ladder that dropped into the ship's lower level. In the corridor between the podship dock and engine room, she stopped to listen. She heard the solid closing of the dock's doors, and the life system pumping oxygen back into the space. Dock is secured, said Ico. Life system stabilized, safe for entry. Cinder's retina display was panicking, as it tended to do when she was nervous or afraid. Red diagnostics flared up in the corner of her vision, laced with warnings. Blood pressure too high, heart rate too fast, systems overheating, initializing auto-cool response. Aiko, what do you see in there? I can see that we need to get some real cameras installed on this ship, she responded. My sensor confirms that this pod ship has docked. I detect two life forms inside, but it doesn't seem that anyone has gotten out of the ship yet. Maybe they were too injured to get out of the ship. Or maybe it was a thaumaturge, unwilling to leave the shuttle while there was still a chance they could reopen the docking doors and have everything inside sucked out into space. Cinder opened the tip of her left pointer finger, loading a cartridge. Though she'd used up all her tranquilizer darts during the fight in Paris, she'd been able to manufacture some weapons of her own, projectiles made of welded nails. We just received another text com from the ship, said Iko. It says, help us. Everything inside Cinder's head was screaming at her. Trap, trap, trap. But if it was Thorn, if Thorn was inside that ship, injured or dying. Clearing her thoughts, she reached up and punched in the dock's access code. Then wrenched down the manual lever. The unlock mechanism clunked and Cinder held up her left hand like a gun. Thorne's pod ship was sandwiched between the second pod and a wall of cords and machinery bolted to the thick paneling. Tools for loading and unloading freight, fueling equipment, jacks, air compressors, pneumatic coils. She inched toward the ship. Thorne, she said, craning her head. She spotted a lump of fabric in the pilot seat, a body hunched over. Shaking, She swung open the door before ducking a few steps back and aiming her weapon at the body. His shirt was soaked in blood. Thorn! Lowering her hand, she reached forward, rolling him toward her. What happened? An orange light brightened in the corner of her vision, her optobionics reminding her that her eyes were a weakness. She gasped and raised her hand again, just as he shot forward. One hand wrapped around her wrist, the other clamped around her neck. His movement so fast, Cinder fell onto the floor. For a moment, it was thorn on top of her, blue eyes surprisingly calm as he pinned her to the ground. Then he morphed. His stare became cold and crystalline. His hair grew longer and lighter, and his clothes melded into the red and gray uniforms of the Lunar Royal Guard. Her instincts seemed to recognize him before her eyes did, flaring with violent hatred. This was not any lunar guard. This was the guard who had held her captive during the ball, while Levana taunted her and threatened Kai, threatened everyone. But wasn't he? A fluttery laugh drifted through the air. Cinder squinted against the bright lights as a woman emerged from the pod ship. Right, the personal guard to head thaumaturge, Sybil Mira. I had expected more from the galaxy's most wanted criminal she said, watching as Cinder pressed her free hand into the guard's chin, struggling to push him away. The thaumaturge smiled, looking like a hungry cat with a new toy. Stars began to speckle Cinder's vision. Shall I kill you here or deliver you in chains to my qu- She cut off, her gray eyes flickering toward the door. A guttural roar was followed by Wolf throwing himself against the thaumaturge and trapping her against the pod ship. The guard's hold slackened, indecision flashing across his face as he glanced up at his mistress. Cinder swung her fist toward his jaw. She felt the crunch, and he reeled back, his attention back on her. Cinder pulled her knees up, gaining purchase, and shoved him away. She scrambled to her feet as Wolf grabbed the thaumaturge and wrenched her back, his lips curled, revealing his implanted fangs. The guard reached for his holster, drawing Cinder's focus. He pulled the gun out. Cinder raised her hand. Two shots fired in unison. Wolf howled in pain as the guard's bullet buried itself beneath his shoulder blade. The guard grunted as Cinder's projectile found his side. Cinder pivoted, her aim seeking out the thaumaturge's heart. But Wolf was between them, a dark spot of blood seeping through his shirt. Sybil's face was disfigured by fury as she placed her palm against Wolf's chest and snarled. Now then, she hissed, let's remind you what you really are. Wolf snapped his jaw shut. A low growl rumbled through his throat. He spun towards Cinder, his gaze filling with bloodlust. Oh, stars, she murmured, backing up until she was pressed against the second pod ship. She held her hand steady, but she had no hope of hitting Sybil with Wolf in the way especially now that he was under the thaumaturge's control. Gulping, she reached out with her mind, grasping for the familiar waves of Wolf's energy, his own signature of bioelectricity, but found something brutal and feral clouding around him instead. Wolf lunged for her. Cinder switched her target, reaching for the guard instead. It felt natural. The half second it took to calm his willpower and force him into action, In a blink, the guard was between them. He raised his gun, but was too slow as Wolf backhanded him out of the way, sending him sliding between the ship's landing gear. The gun clattered along the row of cabinets. Cinder skittered around the pod ship's nose. They made eye contact over its roof and Wolf hesitated, his fangs bared. Cinder's internal warnings were coming so fast they blurred together, pointing out escalated heart rates and an unhealthy increase of adrenaline. She ignored them, focused only on keeping the podship between her and Wolf as he prowled back and forth. But then, his entire body flinched. Wolf turned and raced towards Sybil as another gunshot echoed through the dock. Wolf threw himself in front of the thaumaturge, catching the bullet in his chest. Scarlet screamed from the doorway, a gun in her shaking hands. Panting, Cinder screamed for a weapon, a plan. The thaumaturge was backed into a corner with Wolf acting as her shield. The lunar guard was curled up beneath the nearest podship, hopefully unconscious. Scarlet lowered the gun. The thaumaturge would have no trouble controlling her. Except, the thaumaturge had doubt in her expression and a grimace on her face. A vein was throbbing in her forehead as she cowered behind Wolf. Cinder realized with some shock that it was almost as difficult for Sybil to control Wolf as it was for her. She couldn't control anyone else so long as she had him, and the moment she released Wolf, he would turn on her and the battle would be over. Unless, unless she killed Wolf and removed him from the equation entirely. With the blood pooling and dribbling out of his two bullet wounds, Cinder wondered how long that would take. Wolf, Scarlet's voice shuddered. The gun was still aimed at Sybil, but Wolf was still between them. Another gunshot made Cinder jump, the noise ricocheting off the walls. Sybil cried out in pain. The guard, not unconscious after all, had grabbed the abandoned gun, and he'd shot the thaumaturge. Sybil hissed, her nostrils flaring as she fell to one knee, one hand pressed against her thigh, already covered in blood. The guard was kneeling, gripping the gun. Cinder couldn't see his face, but he sounded strained when he spoke. She's. controlling. me. the cyborg. Cinder's lie detector flickered unnecessarily. She was doing no such thing. Although, had she thought of it before. Sybil shoved Wolf toward the guard. The energy in the room quivered, waves of bioelectricity steaming and shimmering around them. Sybil had released her power over Wolf. The gunshot had weakened her. She could no longer control him. Wolf collapsed against the guard, and they both crumpled to the ground. The guard grappled for purchase, keeping a tight hold on the gun as he shoved Wolf away. Pale and shaking, Wolf couldn't even fight back. Blood puddled around them, slickening the floor. Wolf! Scarlet raised the gun toward the thaumaturge again, but Sybil had already scrambled up, limping behind the nearest pod ship. Cinder drove for Wolf, grabbing him under both arms and dragging him away from the guard. He flailed his legs, his heels slipping on the blood, but otherwise offered no assistance. The guard rose up to a crouch, panting, covered in blood, his own side bleeding from Cinder's projectile. He still held the gun. As Cinder stared at him, she saw the choice. Take control of the guard before he raised the gun and killed her? Or take control of Wolf and give him the strength he needed to get out of the dock before he bled to death. The guard held her gaze for one throbbing moment, before he hauled himself up and ran toward his mistress. Cinder didn't wait to see whether he was going to kill her or protect her. Clenching her fists, she blocked out everything around them, focusing only on Wolf and the bioelectricity that simmered around him. He was weak. This was not like trying to control him in their mock fights. She found her will slipped easily into his, and though his body protested, she urged him to stiffen his legs, just enough to take most of his weight off her, just enough so she could carry him, limping, into the corridor. She dropped Wolf against the wall. Her palms were sticky with blood. What's happening? Iko wailed over the speakers. Keep your sensors on this corridor, said Cinder, When all three of us are safely out of the dock, shut the door and open the hatch. Sweat dripping into her eyes, she rushed back into the dock. All she needed was to get Scarlet and let Iko open the hatch. The vacuum of space would take care of the rest. She spotted the thaumaturg first, not ten paces in front of her. She had a clear shot. Nerves humming with adrenaline, she lifted her hand and prepared a projectile. She took aim scarlet leaped in front of her her arms out in a T. her expression was blank her mind under the thaumaturge's control cinder almost wilted with relief without hesitating she grabbed scarlet around the waist with one arm and raised the other to let off a volley of projectiles toward the thaumaturge more to keep her at bay than in hopes of doing any real damage the last of her welded nails struck the metal walls as cinder stumbled and fell back into the corridor she noticed the orange light in her vision at the same moment. She screamed, I go, now. As the corridor door zipped shut, she spotted Sybil racing toward the nearest pod, and a glimpse of feet on the other side of the pod ship. The guard's feet, but, but, blue jeans and tennis shoes? Cinder shoved Scarlet's body away with a scream. The glamour vanished, along with the orange light in her vision. Scarlet's red hoodie flickered, transforming into the lunar uniform. The guard groaned and rolled away. He was bleeding from the wound in his side. She'd grabbed the guard. Sybil had tricked her, which meant No! Scarlet, I go! She threw herself at the control panel and punched in the code to open the door, but an error flashed at her. On the other side, the docking hatch was opening. A curdled scream echoed through the corridor, and Cinder almost didn't realize it was hers. Cinder, what's happening? What? Scarlet's in there. She has- She raked her fingernails viciously along the door's airtight seal, unable to keep away the vision of Scarlet being pulled out into space. Cinder, the pod ship, said Iko. She's taking the pod ship. Two life forms aboard. What? Cinder looked up at the panel. Sure enough, the room scanners indicated there was only one shuttle still docked. The thaumaturge had survived, and she'd taken Scarlet with her. Chapter 11 She has Scarlet, said Cinder. Quick, close the hatch. I'll take the other pod. I'll follow them. Her words faltered, her brain catching up. She did not know how to fly a pod ship but she could figure it out. She could download some instructions, and she could, she would have to. Your friend is dying. She spun around, she'd forgotten about the Lunar Guard. He was pressing a hand to his side, where Cinder's projectile was still embedded, but his attention was on Wolf. Wolf, who was unconscious and surrounded by blood. Oh no, oh no. She ejected the knife in her finger and started cutting the blood-stained fabric away from Wolf's wounds. Thorn, we need to get Thorn, then we can go after Scarlet and I- I'll bandage Wolf and- She glanced at the guard. Shirt, she said firmly, although the order was more to focus her own thoughts. In seconds, the guard's hands were working at her command, removing the empty gun holster and pulling his own bloodied shirt over his head. She was glad to see a second undershirt as well. She had a feeling they were going to need every bit of bandaging she could find to stanch Wolf's bleeding. Eventually, they would have to get him to the Med Bay, but there was no way she could move him in this condition, especially not up that ladder. She tried to ignore the niggling thought in her head that this was not enough, that not even the bandages in the Med Bay would be enough. She grabbed the guard's shirt and bunched it against Wolf's chest. At least this bullet had missed his heart. She hoped the other one hadn't hit anything vital either. Her thoughts were hazy, repeating over and over in her head. They had to get Thorn. They had to go after Scarlet. They had to save Wolf. She couldn't do it all. She couldn't do any of it. Thorn, her voice broke. Where's Thorn? Keeping one hand pressed onto Wolf's wound, she reached for the guard with the other, grabbing his collar and pulling him toward her. What did you do to Thorn? Your friend who boarded the satellite, he said, as much a statement as a question. There was regret in his face, but not enough. He's dead. She shrieked and slammed him into the wall. You're lying! He flinched, but didn't try to protect himself, even though she'd already lost her focus. She could not keep him under her control so long as her thoughts were so divided so long as this chaos and devastation reigned in her head. Mr. Sybil changed the satellite's trajectory, removing it from orbit. It will burn up during entry. It probably already has. There's nothing you can do. No, she said, shaking her head. Every part of her was trembling. She wouldn't have sacrificed her own programmer too, But there was no telltale orange light in her vision. He wasn't lying. The guard leaned his head back as his gaze skimmed Cinder from head to toe, as if examining an unusual specimen. She would sacrifice anyone to get to you. The queen seems to believe you're a threat. Cinder ground her teeth so hard, she felt that her jaw would snap from the pressure. There it was, stated with such blatant simplicity. This was her fault. This was all her fault. They'd been after her. Your other shirt, she whispered. She didn't bother to control him this time, and he removed the undershirt without argument. Cinder grabbed it from him, spotting the end of her own projectile jutting from his skin, just below his ribs. Looking away, she pressed the second shirt against the wound in Wolf's back. Roll him onto his side. What? Get him on his side. It'll open the airway. Help him breathe. Cinder glowered at him, but a four-second net search confirmed the validity of his suggestion, and she eased Wolf onto his side as gently as she could, positioning his legs like the medical diagram in her brain told her to. The guard didn't help, but he nodded approvingly when Cinder was done. Cinder? It was Aiko, her voice small and restrained, the ship had become dark, running only on emergency lighting and default systems. Aiko's anxiety was clouding her ability to function as much as Cinder's was. What are we going to do? Cinder struggled to breathe. A headache had burst open in her skull. The weight of everything pressed against her until it was almost too tempting to curl up over Wolf's body and simply give up. She couldn't help them. She couldn't save the world. She couldn't save anyone. I don't know, she whispered. I don't know. Finding some place to hide would be a start, said the guard, followed by a ripping sound as he tore a shred of material from the hem of his pants. He winced as he yanked out the projectile and tossed it down the corridor before pressing the fabric against the wound. For the first time, she noticed that he still wore what looked like a large hunting knife sheathed on his belt. He looked up at her when she didn't respond, his eyes sharp as ice picks. Maybe someplace your friend can get help? As a thought. She shook her head. I can't. We just lost both of our pilots, and I can't fly. I don't know how. I can fly. But Scarlet. Look. Thaumaturge Miro will be contacting Luna and sending for reinforcements, and the Queen's fleet isn't as far away as you might think. You're about to have an army on your trail. But, but nothing. You can't help that other girl. Consider her dead. But you might be able to help him. Cinder dropped her chin, curling in on herself, as the wiring decisions in her head threatened to tear her apart. He was being logical. She recognized that. But it was so hard to admit defeat, to give up on Scarlet, to make that sacrifice and have to live with it. With every passing second, though, she was closer to losing Wolf too. She glanced down. Wolf's face was scrunched in pain, his brow beaded with sweat. Ship, said the guard. Calculate our location and relative trajectory over Earth. Where is the closest place we can get to, Some place not too populated? There was a hesitation before Iko said, Me? He squinted up at the ceiling. Yeah, you. Sorry, right. Uh, calculating now. The lights brightened. Following a natural descent to Earth, we could be in Central or North Africa in approximately 17 minutes. A loose thousand-mile radius opens up to the Mediterranean regions of Europe and the western portion of the Eastern Commonwealth. He needs a hospital. Cinder murmured, knowing as she said it, there wasn't a hospital on Earth that wouldn't know he was one of the Queen's wolf hybrids as soon as he was admitted. And the risk she posed to take him there herself and how recognizable the rampion would be? Where could they possibly go that would offer them sanctuary? Nowhere was safe. Beneath her, Wolf moaned. His chest rattled. He needed a hospital, or a doctor, Africa, Dr. Erland. She peered up at the guard and for the first time struggled through the sluggish mess inside her head to wonder why he was doing this. Why hadn't he killed them all? Why was he helping them? You serve the queen, she said. How can I trust you? His lips twitched like she'd made a joke, but his eyes were quick to harden again. I serve my princess, no one else. The floor dropped out from beneath her. The princess? His princess? He knew. She waited a full breath of her lie detector to recognize his falsehood, but it didn't. He was telling the truth. Africa, she said. I go take us to Africa, to where the first outbreak of letimosis occurred. Chapter 12 The fall was slow at first, gradual as the pull of the satellite's orbit was overpowered by the pull of Earth's gravity. Thorne hiked up his pant leg, using his toe to pry off his left boot. The knife he'd stashed there clattered onto the floor, and he grabbed for it, awkwardly trying to angle the blade toward the blanket that was knotted around his wrists. The girl murmured around her gag and shifted toward him. Her binds were much more secure and complex than his own. The thaumaturge had only bothered to have tie his hands in front of him, but this girl had binds all down her legs, in addition to having her wrists fastened behind her and the gag over her mouth. With no leverage to press the knife against his own binds, he nodded at the girl. Can you turn around? She flopped and rolled onto her side, pushing off the wall with her feet to turn herself so her hands were toward him. Thorn hunkered over her and sawed at the sheet that was cutting into her arms. By the time he'd hacked it off, there were deep red lines carved into her skin. She ripped the gag off her mouth, leaving it to hang around her neck, a knot of her frayed hair caught in the fabric. My feet! Can you untie my hands? She said nothing as she snatched the knife from him. Her hands were shaking as she angled the blade toward the binds around her knees, and Thorn thought maybe it was best for her to practice on herself anyway. Sawing through the sheet, she looked like a madwoman. Her brow wrinkled in concentration, her hair knotted, her complexion damp and blotchy, red lines drawn into her cheeks from the gag. But the adrenaline had her working quickly, and soon she was kicking away the material. My hands! Thorn said again, but she was already grasping for the sink and pulling herself up on trembling legs. I'm sorry, the entry procedures, she said, stumbling out into the main room. Thorn grabbed the knife and clambered to his feet as the satellite took a sudden turn. He slipped, stumbling into the shower door. They were falling faster as Earth's gravity claimed them. Using the wall for balance, Thorn rushed into the main room. The girl had fallen too and was now scrambling to get over the bed. We need to get to the other pod ship and disconnect, said Thorn. You need to untie me. She shook her head and pressed herself against the wall where the smallest of the screens was embedded, the screen that the thaumaturg had meddled with before. Strings of hair were sticking to her face. She'll have a security block on the ship, and I know the satellite better, and- Oh, no, 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 she screamed, her fingers flying over the screen. She changed the access code. What are you doing? The entry procedures, the ablative coating should hold while we're passing through the atmosphere, but if I don't set the parachute to release, the whole thing will disintegrate on impact. The satellite shifted again, and they both stumbled. Thorn fell onto the mattress, and the knife skittered out of his grip, bouncing off the end of the bed, while the girl tripped and landed on one knee. The walls around them began to tremble with the friction of Earth's atmosphere the blackness that had clouded the small windows was replaced with a burning white light. The outer coating was burning off, protecting them from the atmosphere's heat. Unlike the Rampion, this satellite was designed for only one descent toward Earth. All right, forgetting about his binds, Thorn swung himself over to the other side of the bed and hauled the girl back to her feet. Get that parachute working. She was still wobbly as he spun them toward the screen, and dropped his arms over her, forming a cocoon around her body. She was even shorter than he'd realized, the top of her head not even reaching his collarbone. Her fingers jabbed at the screen as Thorn widened his stance and locked his knees, bracing himself as much as he could while the satellite shook and rocked around them. He hunched over her, trying to hold his balance and keep her steady while codes and commands flickered and scrolled across the screen. His attention flicked to the nearest window, still fiery white. As soon as the satellite had fallen far enough into Earth's atmosphere, the auto-gravity would shut off and they would be as secure as dice in a gambler's fist. I'm in, she shouted. Thorn curled his toes of his one shoeless foot into the carpet. He heard a crash behind him and dared to glance back. One of the screens had fallen off the desk. He gulped. Anything not bolted down was about to turn into projectiles. How long will it take to- Done! Thorn whipped her around and thrust them both toward the mattress. Under the bed. He stumbled and fell, dragging her down with him. The cabinet swung open overhead and Thorn flinched as a rain of canned goods and dishes clattered around them. He hunkered over the girl, deflecting them away from her. Quick. She scurried forward, out of the ring of his arms, and pulled herself into the shadows. She backed against the wall as far as she could, both hands pushing against the bed frame to lock her body in place. Thorne kicked off from the carpet and grabbed the nearest post to pull himself forward. The shaking stopped, replaced with a smooth, fast descent. The brightness from the windows faded to a sunshine blue. Thorne's stomach swooped, and he felt like he was being sucked into a vacuum. He heard her scream. Pain and brightness exploded in his head. And then the world went black. Book Two The Witch Snipped Off Her Golden Hair and Cast Her Out into a Great Desert Chapter 13 Cress would not have believed that she had the strength to drag Carswell Thorn beneath the bed and secure his unconscious body against the wall if the proof wasn't in her arms. All the while, cords and screens and plugs and dishes and food jostled and banged around them. The walls of the satellite groaned, and she squeezed her eyes shut, trying not to imagine the heat and friction melting through the bolts and seams, trying not to guess at how stable this untested satellite could be. Trying not to think about plunging toward Earth, its mountains and oceans and glaciers and forests, and the impact that a satellite thrown from space would have when it crashed into the planet and shattered into billions of tiny pieces. She was doing a poor job of not imagining it all. The fall lasted forever, while her small world disintegrated. She'd failed. The parachute should have opened already. She should have felt it release felt the snap back as it caught their descent and lowered them gently to Earth. But their fall was only faster and faster as the satellite's air grew warmer. Either she'd done something wrong or the parachute hatch was faulty. Or perhaps there was no parachute at all and the command was from false programming. After all, Sybil had commissioned this satellite. Surely she'd never intended to let Cress land safely on the blue planet. Sybil had succeeded. They were going to die. Cress wrapped her body around Carswell Thorne and buried her face into his hair. At least he would be unconscious through it all. At least he didn't have to be afraid. Then, a shudder, a sensation different from the drop. And she heard the brisk sound of nylon ropes and hissing. And there it was, the sudden jerk that seemed to pull them back into the sky. She cried out and gripped Carswell Thorne tighter as her shoulder smacked into the underside of the bed. The fall became a sinking, and Cress's sobs turned to relief. She squeezed Thorne's prone body and sobbed and hyperventilated and sobbed some more. It took ages for the impact to come, and when it did, the jolt knocked Cress into the bed again. The satellite crashed and slid, rolled over and tumbled. They were slipping down something solid. Perhaps a hill or mountainside. Cress clenched her teeth against a scream and tried to protect Thorn with one arm while bracing them against the wall with the other. She'd expected water. So much of the Earth's surface was water, not this solid something they'd hit. The spiraling descent finally halted with a crash that shook the walls around them. Cress's lungs burned with the effort to take in what air they could. Every muscle ached from adrenaline and the strain of bracing for impact and the battering her body had taken. But in her head, the pain was non-existent. They were alive. They were on earth and they were alive. A grateful, shocked cry fell out of her and she embraced Thorn, crying happily into the crook of his neck. But the joy receded when he did not hold her back. She'd almost forgotten the sight of him hitting his head on the bed's frame, the way his body was thrown across the floor, how he'd slumped unnaturally in the corner and made no sound or movement as she'd hauled him beneath the bed. She pried herself away from him. She was covered in sweat, and her hair had tangled around them both, binding them almost as securely as Sybil's knotted sheets had. Carswell, she hissed. It was strange to say his name aloud like she hadn't yet earned the familiarity. She licked her lips, and her voice cracked the second time. Mr. Thorne? Her fingers pressed against his throat. Relief, his heartbeat was strong. She hadn't been sure during the fall whether he was breathing. But now, with the world quiet and still, she could make out wheezing air coming from his mouth. Maybe he had a concussion, Chris had read about people getting concussions when they hit their heads. She couldn't remember what happened to them, but she knew it was bad. Wake up, please, we're alive, we made it. She placed a palm on his cheek, surprised to find roughness there. Nothing at all like her own smooth face. Facial hair. It made sense, and yet, somehow, she'd never worked the sensation of prickly facial hair into her fantasies. She would amend that after this. She shook her head, ashamed to be thinking of something like that when Carswell Thorne was hurt right before her. And she couldn't do any, he twitched. Cress gasped and attempted to cushion his head in case he jerked around too much. Mr. Thorne, wake up. We're all right, please, wake up. A low, painful moan, and his breaths began to even out. Cress pushed her hair out of her face. It fought against her, clinging to her sweat-dampened skin. Long strands of it were pinned beneath their bodies. He groaned again. Carswell? His elbow lurched like he was trying to lift his hand, but his wrists were still bound between them. His lashes fluttered. Huh? It's all right, I'm here, we're safe. Thorn dragged his tongue around his lips, then shut his eyes again. Thorn, he grunted. Most people call me Thorn, or Captain. Her heart lifted. Of course, the- Captain, are you in pain? He shifted uncomfortably, discovering that his hands were still tied. I feel like my brain's about to leak out through my ears, but otherwise I feel great. Cress inspected the back of his head with her fingers. There was no dampness, so at least he wasn't bleeding. You hit your head pretty hard. He grunted and tried to wriggle his hands out of the knotted blanket. Hold on, there was that knife. She trailed off, scouring the clutter and debris around them. It fell off the bed, said Thorn. Yes, I saw it, there. She spotted the knife handle lodged beneath the fallen screen and went to grab for it, but her hair had gotten so wrapped up around her and Thorn that it yanked her back. She yelped and rubbed at her scalp. He opened his eyes again, frowning. I don't remember being tied together before. I'm sorry, my hair gets everywhere sometimes, and if you could just, here, roll this way. She grabbed his elbow and nudged him onto his side. With a scowl, he complied, allowing her enough movement to reach the knife handle. Are you sure it's over, Thorne started, but she had already draped herself over his side and was sawing through the blanket. Oh, you have a good memory. Hmm, she murmured, focused on the sharp blade. It frayed easily, and Thorne sighed with relief as it fell away. He rubbed his wrists, then reached toward his head. When the tangles of Cress's hair tried to hold him back, he tugged harder. Cress yelped and crashed into Thorn's chest. He didn't seem to notice as his fingers found the back of his scalp. Ow, he muttered. Yeah, she agreed. This bump is going to last a while. Here, feel this. What? He fished around for her hand then brought it to the back of his head. I have a huge bump back here. No wonder I have such a headache. He did indeed have an impressive bump on his scalp, but Cress could think only of the softness of his hair and the way she was practically lying on top of him. She blushed. Yes, right, you should probably, um. She had no idea what he should probably do. Kiss her, she thought. Isn't that what people did after they survived thrilling near-death experiences together? She was sure it wasn't an appropriate suggestion, but this close, it was all she could think about. She yearned to lean in closer, to press her nose into the fabric of his shirt and inhale deeply. But she didn't want him thinking she was odd, or guessing the truth, that this moment, filled with injuries and her destroyed satellite and being separated from his friends was the most perfect moment of her entire life. His brow creased, and he picked at a lock of hair that had tightened around his bicep. We need to do something about this hair. Right, right, she shifted away, her scalp screaming as her hair was trapped beneath them. She started to untangle the strands gently, one by one, Maybe it would help if we turned on the lights. She paused. The lights? Are they voice activated? If the computer system went down in the fall. Spades, it must be the middle of the night. Is there a port screen or something we can turn on at least? Cress cocked her head. I, I don't understand. For the briefest moment, he seemed annoyed. It would help if we could see. His eyes were open, but he was looking blankly past Cress's shoulder. He pried away some strands of hair that had gotten twisted around his wrist, then waved his hand in front of his face. This is the blackest night I've ever seen. We must be somewhere rural. Is it a new moon tonight? His scowl deepened and she could tell he was trying to remember where Earth was in its moon cycle. That doesn't seem right. Must be really overcast. Captain? It's... It isn't dark. I can see just fine. He frowned in confusion and, after a moment, worry. His jaw flexed. Please tell me you're practicing your sarcasm. My sarcasm? Why would I do that? Shaking his head, he squeezed his eyes tight together, opened them again, blinked rapidly. Cursed. Pressing her lips, Chris held her fingers in front of him, waved them back and forth. There was no reaction. What happened? He said. The last thing I remember is trying to get under the bed. You hit your head on the bed frame and I dragged you under here, and then we landed. A little rocky, but that's all, you just hit your head. And that can cause blindness? It might be some sort of brain trauma. Maybe it's only temporary. Maybe, maybe you're in shock? He settled his head on the floor. A heavy silence closed around them. Cress chewed on her lip. Finally, he spoke again, and his voice had taken on a determined edge. We need to do something about this hair. Where did that knife go? Before she could question the logic behind giving a knife to a blind man, she had set it into his palm. Thorne reached behind her with his other hand and gathered a fistful of her hair. The touch sent a delicious tingle down her spine. Sorry, but it grows back, he said, not sounding at all apologetic. He began sawing through the tangles, One handful at a time, grab, cut, release. Cress held perfectly still, not because she was afraid of being cut. The knife was steady in his hand, despite the blindness, and Thorn kept the blade angled carefully away from her neck. But because it was Thorn, it was Captain Carswell Thorn. Running his hands through her hair, his rough jaw mere inches away from her lips. His bra furrowed in concentration. By the time he was brushing feather-soft fingers along her neck, checking for any strands he'd missed, she was dizzy with euphoria. He found a missed lock of hair by her left ear and cut it away. I think that's it. He tucked the knife under his leg so that he would know where to find it and buried his hands into the short, impossibly light hair, working out the remaining tangles. A satisfied grin stretched over his face. Maybe a little jagged on the ends, but much better. Cress reached for the back of her neck, amazed at the sensation of bare skin, still damp from sweat, and short, cropped hair that had a subtle wave to it now that all the weight was gone. She scratched her fingernails along her scalp, riveted by the pleasure of such a foreign sensation. It felt as though 20 pounds had been cut from her head. Tightness was fading from muscles that she hadn't even realized was there. Thank you. You're welcome, he said, brushing away the locks of hair that still clung to him. And I'm really sorry about the blindness. Not your fault. It is kind of my fault if I hadn't asked you to come rescue me and if I hadn't- It's not your fault, he said again his tone cutting off her argument. You sound like cinder. She always blames herself for the stupidest things. The war is her fault. Scarlet's grandmother is her fault. I bet she'd take responsibility for the plague, too, if she could. Picking up the knife, he shimmied out from beneath the bed, pushing his arms out in a wide circle to nudge away any debris before pulling himself up onto the edge of the mattress. His progress was slow like he didn't trust himself to move more than a few inches at a time. Cress followed and stood up beside him, shuffling some of the debris around with her bare toes. One hand stayed buried in her hair. The point is, that witch tried to kill us, but we survived, said Thorne. And we'll find a way to contact the Rampion, and they'll come get us. And we'll be fine. He said it like he was trying to convince himself, but- Cress didn't need any convincing. He was right. They were alive, and they were together. And they would be fine. I just need a moment to think, said Thorn. Figure out what we're going to do. Cress nodded and rocked back on her heels. For a long time, Thorn seemed to be deep in thought, his hands clasped in his lap. After a minute, Cress realized they were shaking. Finally, Thorn tilted his head toward her, though his unfocused eyes were on the wall. He took in a deep breath, let it out, then smiled. Let's begin again with some proper introductions. Did I hear your name was Crescent? Just Cress, please. He extended a hand toward her. When she gave him hers, he tugged her closer, bent his head, and pressed a kiss against her knuckles. Cress stiffened and swooned, her knees threatening to buckle beneath her. Captain Carswell Thorne, at your service. Chapter 14 Cinder followed the progression of the Rampian on her retina display, watching breathlessly as they entered Earth's atmosphere over northern Africa and careened toward Farafra, a small oasis that had once been a trading post for caravans traveling between the Central African Provinces and the Mediterranean Sea. It had fallen into poverty since the plague had first struck a decade ago, sending the trade caravans farther east. She didn't leave Wolf's side. She dressed the wounds as well as she could using the bandages and ointments the guard had thrown down from the ship's upper level. She had already had to change the bandages once, and still the blood soaked through. His face was pale and clammy, his heartbeat growing weaker, each breath a struggle. Please, please let Dr. Erland be there. So far, the guard at least had proven trustworthy. He had flown straight and fast, very fast, to Cinder's relief. It was a risk entering Earth's orbit, but a necessary one. She only hoped this oasis would be the safe haven the doctor had believed it to be. Cinder, said Iko, the lunar is asking where he should land. She shuddered. She'd been expecting the question. It would be safest and most prudent to land outside the town, out in the ruthless desert. But she could never carry wolf, and they didn't have the luxury of being prudent. Tell him to land on the main road. On the map, it looks like there is only one, a town square of sorts. And tell him not to worry about being stealthy. If they couldn't hide, then she would draw as much attention as possible. Maybe if they made enough of a spectacle, it would draw Dr. Erland out from wherever he was hiding. She had to hope that any civilians would be so distracted by their brazenness, they wouldn't bother alerting the police until it was too late. It wasn't a good plan, but there wasn't time to come up with anything better. The ship dove. Normally, this was the quiet part of landing, when the engine power switched to magnetic levitation, but it seemed the guard was planning on doing this all manually. Perhaps the town was so rural they didn't have magnetic roads at all. Finally, the ship clanked and groaned, though it was a soft landing. The shock still made Cinder jump. Wolf groaned. Cinder bent over him and cupped his face in both hands. Wolf, I'm going to get help. Just stay with us, all right? Just hold on. Standing, she keyed in the code for the podship dock. The dock was a sight blood and destruction everywhere. But she walked past the remaining shuttle and tried to put it all from her thoughts. Iko, open hatch. As soon as the doors had parted enough for her to fit through, she crouched on the ledge and jumped down into the street. A cloud of dust whirled around her as her feet struck the hard, dry ground. The surrounding buildings were mostly single story structures made of stone or clay or large beige bricks. Some window shutters had been painted blue or pink, and stenciled designs lined the entryways but the colors had been bleached by the sun and chipped by relentless sand. The road dipped down toward an oasis lake a few blocks to Cinder's right, both sides lined with thriving palm trees, trees that looked too alive for a town that hung with desertion. A few blocks to her left was a stone wall lined with more trees, and beyond it, reddish plateaus disappearing in a sandy haze people were emerging from the buildings and around street corners, civilians of all ages, mostly dressed in shorts and lightweight tops to combat the desert heat, though a few more wore more concealing robes to keep off the blazing sun. Many were covering their mouths and noses. At first, Cinder thought they were protecting themselves from the plague, but then she realized they were simply annoyed at how much dust the ship's landing had kicked up. The cloud was already blowing off down one of the side streets. Cinder scanned them, searching for a wrinkled face and a familiar gray cap. Dr. Erland would be paler than most of the townspeople, although skin tones ranged from the deepest browns to honeyed tans. Still, she suspected that a little old man with glaringly blue eyes would have drawn some attention in the past weeks. She opened her hands wide to show she had no weapons and took a step toward the crowd. Her cyborg hand was on full display, and the townsfolk had noticed. They were staring at it openly, though no one shied away as she took another step closer. I'm sorry about the dust, she said, gesturing to the cloud. But this is an emergency. I need to find someone, a man, this tall. Old, wears glasses and a hat. Have any of you? I saw her first, a girl squealed. She ran out from the crowd, her flip-flops smacking the dirt, and grasped Cinder's arm. Startled, Cinder tried to pull away, but the girl held firm. Then, there were two boys, not older than nine or ten, emerging from the crowd and arguing over who had seen the ship drop out of the sky, who had seen it land, who had seen the docks open, and who had first spotted the cyborg. Step away from Miss Lynn, you greedy little vultures. Cinder whirled around. Dr. Erland was striding toward them, though she almost didn't recognize him. Barefoot and hatless, he wore a pair of khaki shorts and a striped shirt that hung lopsided, as he'd missed a buttonhole, and the rest of the buttons were all wrong. His gray hair stuck out along his bald spot like he'd recently been electrocuted. None of that mattered. She'd found him. I suppose you can all share the prize for finding her, even though the deal was to bring her to me, not to make me come all the way down here in the center of the sun heat. He pulled a bag of gummy candies from his pocket and held it up over the children's heads, forcing them to promise to share before he handed it over. They snatched it and ran away, squealing. The rest of the townspeople remained where they were. Dr. Erland planted his hands on his hips and glared up at Cinder. You have much explaining to do. Do you know how long I've been waiting for you, watching the- I need your help, she said, stumbling toward him. My friend, he's dying. He needs a doctor. I don't know what to do. He scowled. Then his attention caught on something over Cinder's shoulder. The Lunar Guard emerged at the edge of the ship, shirtless and covered in blood, and straining to support Wolf's body. What? He's- A Lunar Guard, said Cinder. And Wolf is one of her soldiers. It's a long story, and I'll explain it later. But can you help him? He was shot twice. He's lost a lot of blood. Dr. Erland raised an eyebrow. Cinder could tell he wasn't at all thrilled with the company she was keeping. Please- Harumphing, he gestured at some of the onlookers and called out a few names. Three men stepped forward. Bring him to the hotel, he said, gently. With a sigh, he set about redoing the buttons on his shirt. Follow me, Miss Lynn. You can help prepare the tools. Chapter 15 I suppose it's too much to hope that we landed ourselves near any sort of civilization, Thorne said, tilting his head to one side. Cress picked her way through the debris to the nearest window. I'm not sure we want to be near civilization. You're a wanted criminal in three earthen countries and one of the most recognizable men on earth. I am pretty famous now, aren't I? Grinning, he waved a hand at her. I guess it doesn't matter what we want. What do you see out there? Standing on tiptoes, Cress peered into the brightness. As her eyes adjusted to the glare, they widened, trying to take it all in. All at once, it dawned on her. She was on Earth. On Earth. She'd seen pictures, of course, thousands and thousands of photographs and vids, cities and lakes and forests and mountains every landscape imaginable. But she had never thought the sky could be so impossibly blue, or that the land could hold so many hues of gold, or it could glitter like a sea of diamonds, or could roll and swell like a breathing creature. For one moment, the reality of it all poured into her body and overflowed. Cress? It's beautiful out there a hesitation before. Could you be more specific? The sky is this gorgeous, intense blue color? She pressed her fingers to the glass and traced the wavy hills on the horizon. Oh, good. You've really narrowed it down for me. I'm sorry, it's just- She tried to stamp down the rush of emotion. I think we're in a desert. Cactuses and tumbleweeds? No, just a lot of sand. It's kind of orangish gold with hints of pink, and I can see tiny clouds of it floating above the ground like uh, like smoke. Piled up in lots of hills? Yes, exactly. (sighs) And it's beautiful, Thorn snorted. If this is how you feel about a desert, I can't wait until you see your first real tree. Your mind will explode. She beamed out at the world. Trees. That explains the heat, then, Thorn said. Cress, in her thin cotton dress, hadn't noticed before. But the temperature did seem to be rising. The controls must have been reset in the fall, or perhaps destroyed altogether. A desert would not have been my first choice. Do you see anything useful? Palm trees? Watering holes? a pair of camels out for a stroll? She looked again, noting how a pattern of ripples had been carved into the landscape, repeating for eternity. No, there's nothing else. All right, here's what I need you to do. Thorn ticked off on his fingers. First, find some way to contact the Rampion. The sooner we get back on my ship, the better. Second, let's see if we can get that door open. We're going to be baked alive if the temperature keeps rising like this. Crest studied the mess of screens and cords on the floor. The satellite was never installed with external communication abilities. The only chance we had of contacting your crew was the DCOM chip that Sybil took. And even if we did have some way of contacting them, we won't be able to give exact coordinates unless the satellite positioning system is functioning, and even then, Thorne held up a hand. One thing at a time. We have to let them know that we're not dead. And check that they're all right, too. I think they're capable of handling two measly lunars, but it would put my mind at ease to be sure. He shrugged. Once they know to start looking for us, maybe Cinder can whip up a giant metal detector or something. Cress scanned the wreckage. I'm not sure anything is salvageable. The screens are all destroyed, and judging from the loss of temperature regulation, The generator is, oh no, little Cress. She wailed and kicked her way to the main data board that had housed her younger self. It was crushed on one side, bits of wire and plastic dangling from the shell. Oh, little Cress. Um, who's little Cress? She sniffed. Me, when I was ten. She lived in the computer and kept me company, and now- She's dead, she squeezed the data board against her chest. Poor sweet little Cress. After a long silence, Thorne cleared his throat. Scarlet did warn me about this. Do we need to bury little Cress before we can move on? Want me to say a few words for her? Cress glanced up, and though his expression was sympathetic, She thought he was probably mocking her. I'm not crazy. I know she's just a computer. It's just, I programmed her myself, and she was the only friend I had. That's all. Hey, I'm not judging. I'm familiar with IT relations. Just wait until you meet our spaceship. She's a riot. His expression became thoughtful. Speaking of spaceships, what about that other pod, the one the guard docked with? Oh, I'd forgotten about that. She tucked the data board beneath its slanted desk and tripped over to the other entryway. The satellite sat at an angle, with the second entry near the lower end of the slope. And she had to clear away countless bits of plastic and broken equipment before she could get to the control screen. The screen itself was down. She couldn't get a flicker of power out of it. So she opened the panel that housed the manual override locks instead. A series of gears and handles had been set into the wall over the door, and while Cress had known they were there for years, she'd never given them much thought before. The devices were stuck from years of neglect, and it took all her strength to pull on the handle, planting one foot on the wall to gain leverage. Finally, it snapped down and the doors sprang open, leaving a gap. Hearing her struggle, Thorn got up and trudged toward her, carefully kicking debris out of his way he kept his hands outstretched until he bumped into her and together they pried open the door the docking hatch was in worse shape than the satellite almost an entire wall had been sheared off and piles of sand had already begun to blow in between the cracks wires and clamps dangled from the shattered wall panels and Cress could smell smoke and the bitter scent of burned plastic the pod ship had been shoved up into the corridor, crumpling the far end of the hatch like an accordion. The docking clamp had been rammed straight through the ship's cockpit control panel, filling the glass with hairline fractures. Please tell me it looks better than it smells, said Thorn, hanging on to the door frame. Not really, the ship is destroyed, and it looks like all the instruments too. Cress climbed down, holding onto the wall for balance. She tried pressing some buttons to bring the ship back to life, but it was useless. All right, next plan, Thorn rubbed his eyes. We have no way of contacting the Rampion, and they have no way of knowing we're alive. Probably won't do us much good to stay here and hope someone passes by. We're going to have to try and find some sort of civilization. She wrapped her arms around herself, a mix of nerves and giddiness swirling in her stomach. She was going to leave the satellite. It looked like the sun was setting, she said, so at least we won't be walking in the heat. Thorn screwed up his lips and thought. This time of year, the nights shouldn't be too cold, no matter which hemisphere we've landed in. We need to gather up all the supplies we can carry. Do you have any more blankets? And you'll want a jacket. Cress rubbed her palms down the thin dress. I don't have a jacket. I've never needed one. Thorn sighed. Figures. I do have another dress that isn't quite so worn as this one. Pants would be better. She glanced down at her bare legs. She'd never worn pants before. These dresses are all Sybil brought me. I I don't have any shoes either. No shoes? Thorn massaged his brow. All right, fine. I went through survival training in the military. I can figure this out. I do have a few bottles we can fill with water and plenty of food packs. It's a start. Water is our first priority. Dehydration will be a much bigger threat than hunger. Do you have any towels? A couple. Good, bring those and something we can use for rope. He raised his left foot. While you're at it, do you have any idea where my other boot ended up? Are you sure you don't want me to do that? Thorn scowled, his empty gaze pinned somewhere around her knee. I may be temporarily blind, but I'm not useless. I can still tie good knots. Cress scratched at her ear and withheld further comment. She was seated on the edge of her bed, braiding a discarded lock of her own hair to use for rope while Thorne knelt before her. His face was set in concentration as he wrapped a towel around her foot, then looped the rope around her ankle and the arch of her foot a few times before securing it with an elaborate knot. You want them to be nice and tight. If the fabric's too loose, it will rub and give you blisters. How does that feel? She wiggled her toes. Good, she said, and waited until Thorne had finished the other foot, before surreptitiously adjusting the folds of the cloth to be more comfortable. When she stood, it felt strange, like walking on lumpy pillows, but Thorne seemed to think she'd be grateful for the makeshift shoes when they were out in the desert. Together, they fashioned a bundle out of a blanket, which they filled with water, food, bedsheets, and a small medical kit that Cress had rarely needed. The knife was safely in Thorne's boot, and they disassembled part of the busted bed frame for Thorn to use as a walking cane. They each drank as much water as they could stand, and then, as Kress gave one last inspection of the satellite and could think of nothing else worth taking, she stepped to the docking hatch and pulled down the manual unlock lever. With a thunk, the door's internal devices released. The hydraulics hissed. A crack opened between the metal doors, allowing Thorn to get his fingers in and push one side into its wall pocket. A breeze of dry air blew into the satellite, a scent Cress had no comparison for. It was nothing like the satellite, or the machinery, or Sybil's perfume. Earth, she supposed, memorizing the aroma. Or desert. Thorne swung the makeshift supply bundle over his shoulder, Kicking some debris out of the way, he reached his hand toward Cress. Lead the way. His hand encased hers and she wanted to savor the moment, the sensation of touch and warmth and this perfect smell of freedom. But Thorn was nudging her forward before the moment had settled. At the end of the docking hatch was the rail and two steps leading down to where a pod ship normally attached. But now, there was only sand. Tinted lavender as night's shadows crept forward. It had already started to blow up onto the second step, and Cress had a vision of the satellite being slowly buried beneath it, disappearing forever in the desert. And then she looked out, past the railing and the dunes, toward the rolling horizon. The sky was a haze of violet, and where that faded away, blue and black and stars the same stars she'd known all her life and yet now they were spread out like a blanket over her now there was an entire sky and an entire world ready to engulf her her head swam suddenly dizzy crest stumbled backward crashing into thorn what what is it she tried to swallow down the rising panic this sensation that her existence was as small and unimportant as the tiniest fleck of sand blowing against her shins. There was a whole world, a whole planet, and she was stuck somewhere in the middle of it, away from everything. There were no walls, no boundaries, nothing to hide behind. A shudder swept over her, goosebumps crawling across her bare arms. Cress, what happened? What do you see? Thorn's fingers tightened on her arms, and she realized she was trembling. She stammered twice before forcing the thought out of her head. It's, it's so big. What's so big? Everything. Earth, the sky. It didn't seem so big from space. Her pulse was a drum, thundering through every artery. She could hardly take in any air and she had to cover her face and turn away before she could breathe again. Even then, the sensation was painful. Suddenly, she was crying, without knowing when the tears had started. Thorn's hand found her elbows, tender and gentle. There was a moment in which she expected to be taken into his arms, pressed warm and safe against his chest. She yearned for it. But instead, he shook her, hard. Stop it, Cress hiccuped. What is the number one thing people die from in the desert? She blinked, and another hot tear slipped down her cheek. What? The number one cause of deaths, what is it? De- dehydration, she said, recalling the Survival 101 lecture he'd given while filling up their water bottles. And what does crying do? It took a moment. Dehydrates? Exactly. His grip relaxed. It's all right to be scared. I get that until now, most of your existence has been contained in 200 square meters. In fact, so far, you've shown yourself to be saner than I expected. She sniffed, unsure if he'd just complimented or insulted her. But I need you to pull yourself together. You may have noticed that I'm not exactly in prime form right now, and I'm relying on you to be aware and observant and help us find our way out of this, because if we don't, I don't know about you, but I'm just not fond of the idea of being stranded out here and eaten alive by vultures. So, can I depend on you to hold it together, for both of us? Yes, she whispered though her chest was about to burst with all the doubts being crammed into it. Thorn squinted, and she didn't think he believed her. I'm not convinced that you fully grasp the situation here, Kress. We will be eaten, alive, by vultures. Can you visualize that for a second? Yes, vultures, I understand. Good, because I need you. And those are not words that I throw around every day. Now, are you gonna be all right? Yes, just give me, I just need a moment. This time, she took in an extra deep breath and shut her eyes and grappled for a daydream, any daydream. I am an explorer, she whispered, setting courageously off into the wild unknown. It was not a daydream she'd ever had before, but she'd felt the familiar comfort of her imagination wrapping around her. She was an archaeologist, a scientist, a treasure hunter. She was a master of land and sea. My life is an adventure, she said, growing confident as she opened her eyes again. I will not be shackled to this satellite anymore, Thorn tilted his head to one side. He waited for three heartbeats before sliding one hand down into hers. I have no idea what you're talking about, he said, but we'll go with it. Chapter 16 Thorn passed the makeshift cane to his opposite side so he could hold Cress's elbow as they stepped out onto the sand. She kept her head down, carefully choosing each step, but also afraid that if she looked up into the sky, her legs would freeze beneath her, and she would never be able to make them move again. When they'd gone a safe distance from the satellite, Cress tentatively lifted her gaze. Ahead of her was the same eternal landscape, the sky growing darker. She glanced back toward the satellite and gasped, Thorn's hand squeezed her elbow. There are mountains, she said, gaping at the jagged peaks along the horizon. He squinted. Mountains or glorified hills? She considered the question, comparing the sight before her with the photos of mountain ranges she'd seen on the screens. Dozens of peaks of varying heights disappeared into the blackness of night. I think real mountains she said. But it's getting dark and I can't see any white on top. Do mountains always have snow? Not always. How far are they? Um, they seemed close, but the foothills and sand dunes between them could have been deceiving, and she'd never been asked to judge distances before. Never mind, Thorne tapped the cane against the ground. It stirred something in Cress's gut when he didn't let go of her arm though perhaps he appreciated the tethering sensation as much as she did. What direction are they in? She took his hand and pointed. Her heart was fluttering erratically, and she felt herself trapped between elation and terror. Even from this distance, she could tell that the mountains were enormous, hulking ancient beasts lined up like an impenetrable wall dividing this wasteland. But at least they were something a physical visual marker to break up the monotony of the desert. They somehow calmed her, even while making her feel as insignificant as ever. So that must be south, right? He pointed in another direction. The sunset over there? She followed his gesture, where a faint green light could still be seen over the rolling dunes, fading fast. Yes, she said a shaky smile stretching across her lips. Her first true sunset. She'd never known sunsets could be green, had never known just how quickly the darkness set in. Her thoughts hummed as she tried to pull together every minute detail to store this moment safely away in a place where she would never, ever forget. Not the way the light turned dull and hazy above the desert. Not the way the stars emerged from the black not the way her instincts kept her gaze from wandering too far up into the sky, keeping her panic at bay. Do you see any plant life, anything other than sand and mountains? Not from here, but I can hardly see anything. Even as they spoke, the blackness was taking over, the once golden sand turned into shadows beneath her feet. There's our parachute, she added, noting the deflated white fabric that stretched out over a sand dune. It was already being swallowed up by the shifting sands. A trench had been carved into the dune where the satellite had hit and slid down. We should cut off a piece, said Thorn. It could come in handy, especially if it's waterproof. They said little as Cress guided him up the dune. The journey made difficult by the unstable ground. Thorn was awkward with the cane, trying to test the ground ahead of him without digging the tip into the hillside and stabbing himself with the other end. Finally, they reached the parachute and managed to cut off a square large enough to be used as a tarp. Let's head toward the mountains, Thorn said. It will keep us from walking directly into the sun in the morning. And with any luck, they'll offer some shelter, and maybe even water. Cress thought it sounded like as good a plan as any, but for the first time, she noted a tinge of uncertainty in Thorne's tone. He was just guessing. He didn't know where they were or what direction would lead them to civilization. Every step they took could be leading them farther and farther from safety. But a decision had to be made. Together, they started up the next dune. The day's heat was fading and a mild breeze kicked sand at her shins. When they reached the top, she found herself staring into an ocean of nothingness. Night had arrived, and she couldn't even make out the mountains anymore. But as the stars grew brighter and her eyes adjusted, Cress realized that the world around her was not pitch black, but tinged with a faint silver hue. Thorn tripped yelping as he stumbled and collapsed onto his hands and knees. The makeshift cane was left jutting up from the sand, having narrowly missed impaling Thorn when he fell. Gasping, Cress dropped to her knees beside him and pressed one hand against his back. Are you all right? Roughly shaking her off, Thorn pushed himself back to sit on his heels. In the dim light, Cress could see that his jaw was clenched tight, his hands balled into fists. Captain? I'm fine, he said, an edge to his tone. Cress hesitated, her fingers hovering over his shoulder. She watched as his chest expanded with a slow breath and listened to the shaky, strained exhale. I, he began, speaking slowly, am not happy with this turn of events. Cress bit her lip, burning with sympathy. What can I do? After a moment of glaring absently toward the mountains, Thorn shook his head. Nothing, he said, reaching back until his arm hit the cane. He wrapped his fingers around it. I can do this. I just need to figure it out. He climbed to his feet and yanked the traitorous cane out of the sand. Actually, if you could try to give me some warning when we're coming up on a hill or about to start heading down again, that would help. Of course, we're almost to the top of- She trailed off as her eyes left Thorn's face to seek out the top of the dune and caught on the moon, a crescent glowing vivid and white off the horizon. She shriveled away from it, habit telling her to hide beneath her desk or bed until the moon couldn't find her anymore. But there was no desk or bed to crawl beneath. And as the initial surprise wore off, she began to realize that the sight of the moon didn't grip her with terror as it once had. From Earth? It somehow seemed so very far away. She gulped. Almost to the top of this dune. Thorn quirked his head to the side. What's wrong? Nothing. I just, I can see Luna. That's all. She let her gaze wander away from the moon, taking in the night sky. She was tentative at first, worried that looking at the sky would once again overwhelm her. But she soon discovered that there was something comforting about seeing the same galaxy she'd always known, the same star she'd been looking at all her life, seen through a new lens. The tension in her body released bit by bit. This was familiar. This was safe. The faint swirl of gases in the universe, glowing purple and blue, the sparkle of thousands and thousands of stars, as numerous as sand grains, as breathtaking as an earthen sunrise seen through her satellite window. Her pulse skipped. Wait, the constellations, she said, spinning in a circle while Thorn brushed the sand from his knees. What? There, there's Pegasus, and Pisces, and, oh, it's Andromeda. What are you? Oh, Thorne dug the cane into the sand, settling his weight against it. For navigation, he rubbed his jaw. Those are all Northern Hemisphere constellations. That rules out Australia, at least. Wait, give me a minute, I can figure this out. Cress pressed her fingers against the sides of her face, trying to picture herself looking at these same constellations how many countless times from the windows of her satellite. She focused on Andromeda, the largest in sight, with its alpha star glowing like a beacon not far off the horizon. Where would her satellite have been in relation to Earth when she was seeing that star at that angle? After a moment, the constellations began to spread out like a holograph in her mind, as if she were seeing the shimmering illusion of Earth rotating slowly before her. Surrounded by spaceships and satellites and stars. 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 I think we're in Northern Africa, she said, turning around to scan the other constellations that were emerging from the ocean of stars. Or possibly the Commonwealth in one of the Western provinces. Thorn's brow knit together. Could be the Sahara. His shoulders began to slump and Cress saw the moment when he realized that it made no difference what hemisphere they were in, what country. It was still a desert. They were still trapped. We can't stand here stargazing all night, he said, bending down to pick up the bag of supplies and resituate it on his shoulder. Let's keep heading toward those mountains. Cress tried to offer him her elbow again, but Thorne only gave it a gentle squeeze before letting go. Throws off my balance, he said, testing the length of the cane so he could walk without spearing it into the ground again. I'll be fine. Burying her disappointment, Cress started up the dune. She announced the top when they reached it and continued down the other side. Chapter 17 Scarlet was piloting the pod ship, She could not recall how long she had been flying it, or where she had been before, or how she had ended up behind these controls. But she knew very well why she was there. Because she wanted to be. Because she needed to be. If she did well, she would be rewarded. The thought made her feel joyful, eager, willing. And so she flew fast. She flew steady. She allowed the little ship to become an extension of her, her hands gripping the controls, her fingers dancing over the instruments. She had never flown so well, not since the day her grandmother had begun teaching her in the delivery ship around the farm. How the ship had warbled under her unskilled hands, how it rocked and sank, its landing gear brushing against the just-tilled dirt, then miraculously drifted back up toward the sky as her grandmother's patient voice talked her through the steps. The memory disappeared as fast as it had come, snapping her back into the pod ship, and she could not remember what she had just been thinking. She could only think of this flight, this moment, this responsibility. She paid no heed to the stars blurring out in all directions. She gave no thought to the planet falling farther and farther behind her. In the ship's back seat, The woman was hissing and cursing as she tended to her wound. She was upset, and this alone bothered Scarlet, because she wanted the woman to be pleased. Eventually, the angry muttering died down, and then the woman was talking. Scarlet's heart fluttered until she realized that it was not to her that the woman was speaking. Rather, she had sent out a calm. She heard two words that sent a bolt of panic through her. Your Majesty. She was talking to the Queen herself. It occurred to Scarlet that this knowledge should terrify her, but she couldn't recall why. Rather, she felt embarrassed to be listening in. It wasn't her place to be curious. She tried to ignore the conversation, allowing her mind to muddle and wander. Inside her head, she recited childhood rhymes that she hadn't thought of in years. It mostly worked. Only when a name broached her consciousness did curiosity overcome her. Lynn Cinder. No, I could not capture her. I was overpowered. I'm sorry, Your Majesty, I have failed you. Yes, I have already sent the last known coordinates of the ship to the Royal Guard. I was able to capture a hostage, Your Majesty, one of her accomplices. Perhaps she has information on where Lynn Cinder might go next, or what her plan could be. I know it isn't good enough, your majesty. I will make this up to you, your majesty. I will find her. The conversation ended and Scarlet's ears burned at having eavesdropped. She was ashamed. She deserved punishment. In an attempt to make up for her delinquency, she refocused on her task. Flying as smooth and fast as any pilot had ever flown, she thought only of how she must fly well. She thought only of how she must make her mistress proud of her. She felt no awe as she approached the great crater-filled luna with its gleaming white surface and sparkling domed cities. Cities that were home to countless strangers. Cities that had been his home once. She flinched at the intrusive thought. She did not know what it meant. She could not remember who he was but this was where he came from. She suppressed the voice out of nervous panic that her mistress would sense her confusion. She did not want that. There was no confusion. She knew precisely where she wanted to be, precisely who she wished to be serving. Scarlet felt no fear as the moon dwarfed the tiny ship, expanded until it was all she could see through the glass, She paid no attention to the hot tears as they crept down her cheeks and dripped soundlessly into her lap.